The setting was perfect for a miracle. The setting was perfect for a miracle. You see, a man named Paul, who had recently become a convert to Christianity, who had been a Jew, who had been against Jesus Christ, but had met Jesus Christ uh, in a vision and had decided to be a Christian, and was one of the most renowned and zealous, passionate missionaries that Christianity has had. And he was going around and gathering up uh, other people to join him in going to spread the message of the good news that Jesus Christ came uh, to love and to die for humanity. Well, he was in a place called Troas, and he received a vision. And in this vision, a man said, come to Macedonia and help us. And so then Paul traveled from Troas. Let's see if I can get, yep, there it is. So Troas to Philippi. So he got in a boat. And he sailed with his companions, Silas and Timothy, um, and also possibly with Luke, who wrote the book, Acts of the Apostles, from which we get this account today. And so he arrives in Philippi. And Philippi was a city in eastern Macedonia. It was established in 356 BC by Philip II, who was the father of... Bless you. Anybody know? Father of... Famous Greek person. Alexander the Great, yes. And so because Philip II established that city, um, they had a shrine in his honor, um, and they worshipped him as a god. This is just the remains of that shrine. I'm sure back in that day it was a lot more magnificent than that. Um, so Philippi was a pretty important city. It was a strategic city because it was in the middle of the royal route between the east and west side of Macedonia. So they had a Greek theater. They had um, a temple to, their, to the Greek gods. And this is kind of remains of Philippi that we have today. And this is where Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke traveled to about AD 49, AD 50. And the setting was perfect for a miracle. Paul had arrived and found a group of women um, praying together by the river. And he spoke with them and he shared with them about Jesus Christ. And they accepted. Um, in the account, it says the Lord opened their hearts and one woman named Lydia uh, was a seller of purple cloth, which was a pretty prestigious um, career in that day, uh, became a Christian and invited Paul to stay in Philippi. She begged him, it says, to come stay in her home and spend longer uh, time explaining everything and, and being with them. So Paul says, okay, and Paul and Silas are there for a few days. And something happens. They're on their way to a prayer meeting, and while they're walking along, there's a, a, a young woman who follows after them. And the account of the story says that this young woman possessed the spirit of fortune-telling. And this was actually very common. In fact, this is a, um, a stone relief found in the ancient harbor of Athens, depicting uh, someone who's been possessed of the spirit of fortune-telling. And they believed that the Greek god Apollo endowed individuals with this gift. And so they often would have these individuals um, you know, do their fortune-telling, and they were often exploited for this gift. And this unfortunate girl was a slave and was being exploited by her slave masters to work on their behalf. And this girl was following after Paul and Silas day after day after day, yelling out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, and they have the way to salvation. Every day. And the story goes that she would follow them and, and screaming this out as, as they're walking along. And after a few days, Paul and Silas kind of have had enough. Because it's one thing to be endorsed by people with good reputation and by people that, you know, you ally with. 
purely another thing to be endorsed by individuals that you don't really want to be associated with, um, especially since their, um, her, and her and her masters are basically worshiping Apollo. And so finally, Paul turns around and says, in the name of Jesus, uh, I command the spirit to, to, to get out of this woman and, and to give her freedom. And it happens. So all of a sudden, she is no longer possessed with the spirit. She's a free woman. And I'm sure she was very grateful, but her masters were not. Because now they have lost their way to profit. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16. And this is where it says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You see the slave masters um, kind of took advantage of the fact that there was rampant anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire. In fact, just the year before, the Roman Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome for being troublemakers. And so they kind of capitalized on that by saying, oh, these men are Jews, and get the whole crowd to turn against them. Um, and they get beaten, and they get imprisoned. In fact, they're not just imprisoned temporarily. They are put in maximum security. It said that the magistrates told them to put them in the innermost prison and to make sure that they stay there. In fact, they put... Uh, now, here's the artist's depiction of what that prison might have... This is the actual um, ruins of, of that area, but... This is an artist's depiction of what that might have looked like. I don't know if Silas was, was that plump. I don't know. But, you know, what, what it meant to put the socks on meant that physically it must, it would have, it would have been very uncomfortable. It basically means you can't lie down, you know, you can't have a snooze. You're sitting up, um, you can't move your legs and you're chained up, so you can't really move your arms. And so you've just been beaten, so your back is raw against the stone and that's how you are. And if that were me, at this point, I would be saying, all right, God, you told me to come to Macedonia. I came to Macedonia, and I've shared about you with people. Um, things are going really well. I've even rescued a girl that was in slavery. And this is what happens, right? It's about time for a miracle, I would tell God. It's about time for a miracle. But Paul and Silas break our expectations. This is actually what happens. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. First of all, it's crazy that Paul and Silas are singing and praising God um, in that condition, Right? of being in stocks, being in pain, being unjustly accused, not knowing what will happen to them the next day. Okay, fine. Maybe they're very, you know, faithful and positive thinking. I can understand that. But when the earthquake happens and when everything falls apart, think about this. Imagine there's an earthquake. 
you would imagine that the, that the walls would cave in and that they would be in danger. But this earthquake happened, and the only things that fall apart are the socks on their feet, and the chains on their hands, and the hinges on the doors. And everybody's safe. The walls are fine. Just the things that bind the prisoners come apart. Isn't this a miracle? At this point, I would say, Hallelujah, thank you, God. And I would give a little gloat to the people around. See, this is, this is my God watching my back because I'm faithful, right? This is how God treats those who are good to Him. You should follow Him too. And that's the kind of God that I would have portrayed. And that's, that's the kind of, of, of um, miracle that I would have embraced. And I would have walked out there. And yeah, I would have made sure all the prisoners came with me. It would have been like this great Zorro meets Gladiator type of, you know, end, exit. And we would have walked out of there and we would have written that off as a testimony to share about how good God is to those who are faithful to Him. But Paul and Silas don't do that. This earthquake was clearly a miracle. It's a miracle and not just a coincidence because all the chains and all the socks and all the doors only come apart, leaving everybody safe. Clearly, this is a miracle for Paul and Silas, right? But instead of seizing that opportunity, instead of accepting that as a miracle from God for them, they actually stay put. They actually stay put. This is what the story says. When the jailer woke, he, was, he must have fallen asleep, uh, maybe by the singing of Paul and Silas, When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Why did the prisoner try to kill himself? In that time, if you have these prisoners in your care and they escape while under your care, Not only would you be killed, you'd be killed in terrible, cruel, painful ways. Uh, Roman um, government had invented all kinds of ways to kill. Um, The crucifixion was one, but that was just one. Another one was they would throw you into a pool that had carnivorous fish so that you could be eaten alive. And so it's no wonder that this soldier, that this prison guard, decided to himself in that moment, the doors are open. They must have all escaped. I don't want to die like that. And plus, the shame that would come upon his family, right, that he had let the prisoners escape, would haunt his family. He didn't want that kind of shame either, so he decided, it's better if I die right here, right now. And just as he's about to kill himself, can you imagine, this is midnight, you know, this isn't a time of electricity, so everything's pitch dark, it's midnight. He can only assume that they've all left. And can you imagine in the silence, After the earthquake rumble, you hear that sword being unsheathed. And he thinks this is it. And it's in that moment of absolute silence that you hear this voice ring out, don't hurt yourself, we are all here. And he must have been like, what, I can't believe my ears, what what do you mean? And he, he, he calls for a light, he rushes in, and this is another artist's depiction of this story. Um, and you can see how the stocks have fallen off, the chains have fallen off, but everything else is fine. And the story goes, the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I have two questions for you. Why didn't Paul and Silas leave? And why did the jailer believe that they had the answer to salvation? Why didn't Paul and Silas leave? And why did the jailer believe that they would have the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? I believe that these two questions share the same answer. Oftentimes, when miracles happen in our lives, when good things, good fortunes happen to us, the first thing we do is thank God for blessing us. And that's very normal. That's very intuitive. That's just uh, the natural cause or the effect but Paul and Silas had, had such an intimate relationship with God that their first thought when the earthquake came was not, thank you, Jesus, thank you for the miracle, I can now leave. But instead, I'm going to make sure I stay. I'm going to make sure I keep that jailer from getting into trouble. I'm going to make sure that I stay to um, reassure the jailer that we are all still here. That kind of mindset of other-centeredness, of unselfish sacrifice, of actually in that moment of crisis when your life is in danger, worrying about the life of somebody who is not just a stranger, but someone who is actually your enemy. This is the very same person who had put your feet in the stocks. This is the very potentially the same person who beat you with a rod. This is the same person who probably cursed at you as he, as he changed you up. So this isn't just your friend or someone you love. This is someone that you could have walked away without any guilty conscience that you're leaving behind. And yet for this very person, Paul and Silas cared so deeply for that not only did they stay, but somehow they compelled the rest of the prisoners to stay instead of taking that moment to escape. When I first read this story, you know, as a child and growing up, I had heard this story. I always thought to myself, that the earthquake was a miracle for Paul and Silas. But then as I read it again, I realized that the earthquake was not for Paul and Silas. And that the Paul and Silas recognized that and realized that this earthquake was actually for the jailer. It was an opportunity for the jailer to see firsthand and witness what self-sacrificing love is like. I imagine that when the jailer ran over with the torch and saw that every single prisoner was still there when they could have walked out through that open door and he fell down to his knees overcome by the sacrifice that they had made for him because who knows what those prisoners will have to face tomorrow they could all be executed the next day so he knows that this wasn't just a kind gesture this was truly a sacrifice an exchange of life for someone that they didn't even know, for someone who had mistreated them probably. And overcome by that self-sacrificing love, he falls to his knees and he knows that they know the way to salvation. That slave girl who was crying out in the streets, these men, these men are the servants of the Most High God and they have the way to salvation. 
she had been saying that for days. And I'm sure that rumor spread throughout that city back before media, you know, people would talk by the well. And so actually things spread very quickly. And so I imagine that the jailer had heard that statement, these men have the way to eternal life. These men have the way to salvation. And then when he witnessed them, instead of, instead of being angry, instead of cursing back like all the other prisoners, when they were instead praising and singing God's praise and worshiping him, I think he realized there's something different about these individuals. But it wasn't until the actual self-sacrificing act that this man is, is completely willing to say, whatever you have to teach, I'm ready to listen. And not only himself, but he takes them out of prison, takes them home, brings them to his family so they too can hear about Jesus. And then that whole family, and can you imagine the very man who put their feet in the stocks now washes their feet, now washes their back, you know, tends to their wounds, gives them new clothes, feeds them food before bringing them back. This all happens between midnight and morning. Midnight and morning. The earthquake was not a miracle for the prison break, but for the miracle of self-sacrifice, which led to the miracle of conversion. Even though Paul and Silas could easily have claimed their Roman citizenship, because what happens later in the story is that um, he has to bring them back to prison, and I think they wanted to come back. Paul and Silas come back to prison. Morning comes, and the magistrates come, and they say, release the prisoners, release Paul and Silas. And you know what Paul says? He says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, I have rights that you have completely violated, because as a Roman citizen, you had to have trial, you had to um, go through a whole process before you were condemned, and they had been beaten, they had been stripped naked, and they have been in prison without any of that. Because they didn't know. Because they just thought these men are Jews. They didn't realize that Paul is actually a Roman citizen. So Paul claims his citizenship and says, you, you're not going to just quietly make me go away. You come down here and you apologize and you escort me out. And I really like how Paul did that. Because I think he did that for two reasons. One, I think he did that to show them, don't mess with the Christian church that I have, I'm now leaving behind. Right? He has now um, Lydia and this jailer and a few other converts. And he wants to make sure that they won't be unduly uh, persecuted. But I think he's also trying to make another point. And that point is this. Did Paul know that he was a Roman citizen before the earthquake or no? Yeah. Why didn't he claim his citizenship when he was being beaten? Or when he was about to be thrown into prison? At any point, if he had said, I'm a Roman citizen, they would have immediately stopped, would have treated him very differently. And I wonder if it's because Paul and Silas, um, through their intimate relationship with God, somehow knew that through this suffering, some good would come. And that through being thrown into jail, there was someone God wanted them to minister to. And it's amazing to me that they would choose that kind of self-sacrificing ministry willingly. It's one thing to go through suffering and find some good. It's another thing to choose suffering knowing that you're going to suffer, knowing that it's going to be painful, knowing that you might not come out at the end of it alive and still go through it for the sake of someone else. That's exactly what Jesus had done. When Jesus Christ came to earth, 
and he realized that his mission was to die for his people, was to die for every single person here in this room as well. He knew that it was going to be a difficult experience. He knew that it would be a very um, painful ordeal, not just physically, but spiritually and mentally and emotionally. In every single way, Jesus knew that it was going to be extremely difficult. And he often said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but I will. And I'll do it because I want others to live. In fact, he told a parable in a book called John. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's completely countercultural and counterintuitive to seek someone else's preservation before your, your own. To look out for the interests of someone else's before your own. To even exchange your life for someone else. But Jesus says that the law of the universe is that the more you look out for yourself and the more you take, actually, the more alone you become. He says when a single grain remains by itself, it's by itself. There is no meaning to that. Just like if you live your whole life looking out for yourself, okay, you might get everything that you want, but you will not be satisfied and you will remain alone. Whereas Jesus says, when that grain falls into the earth and dies, a harvest of much fruit comes. And in the same way, Jesus says, when you deny yourself. And when he says, you know, hate your life, it doesn't mean literally hate your life. What he means is, uh, here's a different uh, way of, of looking at it. In the book of Mark, he says, if anyone come at, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So here he says, whoever is willing to lose your life for my sake and the gospel's sake. That's what it means to, to hate your life. In other words, you're prioritizing God and God's people and God's agenda above yourself. And Jesus says, when you do that, you won't be alone because your choice of taking on that cross, your choice of that self-denial is going to result in many people being saved and in many people uh, being able to come to God. And you yourself will have eternal life, he says. Could it be that the miracles in our lives are not just for us to smugly praise God for loving us and for being good to us, but that there are actually opportunities for us to share those blessings with others. Could it be that the blessings in our lives, whether financial or health or friendships, are not signs of God's favor on His people, but really God's temporarily entrusting them to us so that we can share them with others? Could it be that when we follow the example of Jesus, others can finally understand the cross and want to believe in a God like that? I think too many times, and I, myself included, we, we, we praise God and we openly share about thanksgiving to God for His blessings to us. Right? 
But even if we have good intentions, the message that we're sending to the world is that God is good to those who are good. And the message that we're sending to the world is that you have to be good in order for God to be good. And if anything bad happens to you, then maybe God is unhappy with you. And that somehow God only favors those who are faithful to him. But I think this story illustrates that actually God's favors towards us are are simply an avenue, a channel, because we are open, hopefully, that God gives us those blessings as stewards so that we can then go and share those blessings with others and they can see what love looks like. They can understand God's true character, that He is good to the just and the unjust. That He sends miracles, not just for Paul and Silas, but actually for the jailer who wasn't even interested in God before. It's counter-cultural and it's counter-intuitive to choose the cross and to choose self-denial, to give of ourselves, of our time, of our resources, of our friendships, to be able to share, truly share with someone else that's around us. Could it be that the miracle that we've been praying for is actually meant for the person that's next to us? Could it be that you are in your workplace not just to earn a good salary or to achieve your KPIs, but to be a blessing to someone in your workplace? And it's always the person you least expect. Are you in that home not just to build equity and get your foot into the real estate door, but to create a harbor for others to come and find Jesus' self-sacrificing love there? Could it be that you are in your suffering, whatever pain and struggle you're going through, because he's setting the stage for a miracle, the miracle of someone understanding the love of Christ. We've been doing the 40-day media fast, and um, one of the things that Roy and I have been doing is instead of you know, going on Facebook and YouTube, we've been trying to read together. And one of the books that uh, we read together is a book called Unbroken. Have you heard of this book? It's actually a movie uh, now, I believe. And um, Unbroken is a, is a biography. It's a true story of a man named Louis Zamperini. Anybody know who this is? Louis Zamperini was an Olympian athlete from the U.S. Um, ever since he was a young boy, he um, actually, when he was really young, he couldn't run at all. Um, and he was actually really embarrassed because he tried to run and the girls made fun of him. And he realized, oh, I'm actually really terrible. Um, and then his older brother came along and just trained him. So he became one of the fastest individuals um, in the world. And when he competed in the Olympics, in um, actually the Olympics in Germany in 1936, he ran the 5,000-meter race, uh, which wasn't his actual uh, field, but that was all that he could qualify for at the time because um, he was young. And he ran this race uh, in 1936, and in the last lap, I forget the exact number. I think he ran it in 56 seconds, the last lap, which had been unheard of. It was it was a new record. And Hitler actually wanted to meet him and shook his hand. And what happens is that this young man who was such a promising athlete, uh, was training for the next Olympics, um, life comes in and changes his plans because World War II happens. So he actually goes into uh, the war, and he actually joins um, as a as a uh, bombardier. So on the plane, he's the one that's actually you know coordinating the bomb, etc. And what happens to this young man who could have 
if, if war hadn't happened, probably been an Olympic uh, medalist, goes into the war and, um, you know, barely survives with a picture of him running, barely survives, you know, many close calls. Like here's, I think this particular time, the plane had 457 bullets come through um, and he survived. But what happens is um, in a different plane, he crashes. And they crash into the Pacific Ocean, and him and two other individuals survive, and they're on a life raft, just drifting, waiting for someone to find them. And they drifted for 47 days. 47 days without food, without water. Okay, You have to read the story. Um, it's an amazing story. And uh, what happens is they eventually get rescued, but unfortunately they get rescued by the Japanese. Um, and when they get rescued, they promptly get sent to the prisoner of war camps where they are starved and tortured um, and beaten. And here's a picture of uh, him after the rescue, right after the rescue, right after the rescue. Um, and here's, here's one of, of them as well. So what happens is after uh, the war, he even survives this. And when he was on the raft for 47 days and when he was at the POW camp, they constantly prayed, God, if you, if I survive this, then I will serve the rest of my life for you. I will serve you for the rest of my life. And he prayed that over and over again while he was going through an unimaginable suffering. When you're reading a book, it's like a 600-page book, and I couldn't put it down, so I read it all in one night, which was a mistake. But um, Roy read it in like three days, I think. It was, it's just an incredible book. And um, as you're reading it, you're just like, I can't believe humanity does this to each other. But after he survives, um, there, there had been particular prison guards that were particularly vicious and just sadists and just enjoyed causing pain. Um, and so Louis in particular, because he was an Olympian, because he was well known, they kind of picked on him and just repeatedly abused him. And when he survived, uh, after he came back, he, you know, he did survive after all that. And he came back to the U.S. Um, in 1945, and he actually got married. Um, and to the outside world, you know, he was a war hero, survived all that, came back, is having a good life, right? But no, he was having nightmares every night. Every night, nightmares of his tortures. Um, and in order to drown out his suffering and drown out the memories, he started drinking, and he became an alcoholic. And his beautiful wife um, couldn't take it anymore. They even had a baby, and, and, and he wasn't taking care of the baby because he was an alcoholic, and she was about to file for divorce. But somehow she ended up going to hear a young preacher, a new young preacher at the time named Billy Graham. And she went to hear him preach, and she came back and said, because of what I've just heard, I decided to give my life to Jesus. I'm not going to divorce you. And he was so grateful that she wasn't going to divorce him that, you know, he was just happy. But then she kept pestering him to come and listen with her. And he said, no, 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 no. And he, he didn't want any of that. But finally, because he was so tired of her begging him, and because he recognized that she wasn't divorcing him because of this, he's like, all right, well, at least I'll go here once, and then I'll sneak out, and I'll never have to go back. Well, he went, and Billy Graham said something. He said something about, have you ever made promises to God? And all of a sudden, he had this flashback to all those days and nights where he prayed constantly, God, if I survive this, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And that thought came to Billy, uh, not to Billy, to Louis, and he thought, oh, 
I did pray that, didn't I? And he hadn't thought about that. You know, after he survived, he never thought about thanking God. He never thought about keeping that promise. It had been four years since the war. Four years of nightmares. Four years of trying to drown out his, his pain. And that night, as he thought about that, he said, All right, God, I did make those promises. I'm going to give my life to you. And I'm going to forgive those tortures that come out in my nightmares every night. And the moment he made that decision, that very night, he didn't have a nightmare. The next day, no nightmare. The next day, no nightmare. He never had the nightmares again. Never had the nightmares again. And instead, what Louis decided to do was serve the rest of his life for Jesus. So he went around sharing the power of forgiveness and the power of Jesus' love. In 1949 is when he gave his life to Jesus. In 1950, he flew to Japan, and he went to Sugamo Prison, where a lot of the, um, the Japanese prison guards who had committed atrocious war crimes were held. And he went to that prison, and he uh, went up and said, if you recognize me, can you please step forward? And several of the guards did, because he had been at several camps, actually, in the two years that he was a POW. And he went up, to each one of them and embraced them and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And you know what happened? Several of those prison guards became Christians as well. You know why? Because when someone shows self-sacrificing love, when someone who has no reason to forgive, who has every right to hold bitterness and anger towards them, who has every right to demand that these individuals be imprisoned forever or executed, instead actually went and pleaded with the president to forgive them, was pleading for them to be taken out of jail. That kind of self-sacrificing love spoke volumes. That did more than any one, you know, just dry, theoretical, philosophical study about what Jesus could be, did. And so because of this man's example, um, people's lives were changed. And... Hundreds and thousands of people became inspired to give their lives to Jesus as well because he just became um, a speaker traveling around sharing this story with others. And um, unfortunately, he did die last year, actually. But he, until last year, he was going around sharing his news. And um, the, the, the woman who wrote the book, Unbroken, um, you know, was devastated when he died because they had become such good friends. And I think um, Angelina Jolie directed the movie that came out last year, and she was devastated when he died because she said she learned so much from this man. This man impacted so many people, um, children, adults alike, with his story of forgiveness and love. But he's not the only one. He's just one of many followers of Jesus who have decided, you know what, I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to carry the cross. And in that moment when, when I am going through suffering or in that moment when I'm actually being blessed, whatever is happening in my life, instead of focusing on why am I going through this, this suffering or instead of saying, oh, thank you, God, for the blessing and keeping it to myself, I'm going to ask, who can I share this with? What can I do for the person next to me? How can I meet their needs? And so because of Jesus because of Paul and Silas, because of Louis, because of the many people in our own lives who have inspired us, we are able to understand the cross. Someone once said to me, 
um, in a book um, the person was writing and, and they were explaining, you know, it's so hard for us who live, you know, 2014, uh, are you 2014? 2015, oh my, <laughs> who live in 2015, it's so hard for us to imagine a man 2,000 years ago, somewhere over there in the Middle East, dying for me. It's so intangible, so difficult to understand. But when someone next to me in 2015, someone does something that, that shows a little bit of self-sacrifice, you know, um, giving of their finances, giving of their time, giving of their heart, giving of them, their family, really sacrificing something of themselves for me, even if it's small, all of a sudden, I can understand what love is. All of a sudden, I can understand this idea of the cross because that person chose to carry the cross and on that cross is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is lifted up, he draws all people to himself. And so our challenge today is simply this. Are we willing to take up the cross? Are we willing to take up the cross because Jesus has taken it for us? Are we willing to, in our moment of blessing, look around to see who we can share it with? That when that miracle comes, instead of thinking, hallelujah, this is for me, to say, hallelujah, this is for that person over there, and I'm going to go minister to that person. I pray that as we discuss uh, in our smaller groups about what sacrifice and what love means, and you know, it's not an easy answer. I know it's not easy to do. But I pray that as we talk about it, as we pray about it, as we ruminate about it, and as we act it out throughout the, today and the rest of this week, I pray that the self-sacrificing love of Jesus inspires us to then share the joy of seeing the harvest of many lives who will be blessed. And may that joy not only inspire us, but satisfy us so that we can live this life fully for Him. Thank you.